Back when gas was 31 cents per gallon and Casey Anthony wasn't a household name, America knew a different name, Alice Crimmins. Dubbed the Casey Anthony of her time, Alice Crimmins was a mother in the 1960s who didn't necessarily fit in with society's standards. When her two kids turn up dead and she is police's main suspect, her trial seems to focus a lot less on the murder of her children and a lot more on who she was in her free time. We are your hosts, Sherry Ferreira. And Helen Allen. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Crimmins was born on March 9th, 1939 in the Bronx. She grew up in New York, obviously, married her high school sweetheart Edmund Crimmins and settled down in Kew Garden Hills, which was a neighborhood in Queens. They went on to have two children after about two years of marriage. And by 1965, when this all goes down, Eddie, her older child, was five. And Alice Marie, who would be nicknamed Missy, was four. So they both, they named their both their kids after them. After them, yeah. Them. Cool. Which, like... <laughs> okay. It's so a choice. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's a, a choice, choice for sure. Now... Things were not all that perfect in their marriage. Alice was not happy and just felt that Edmund no longer satisfied her. So she began to secretly see other men, but went on to get a formal divorce in 1964. Okay, so did he... So when you say secretly, do you mean secretly from Edmund or secretly from the public? No, it was just from the public. Okay, got it, got yeah. it. So he was kind of aware of the affair? Yeah, he knew about got it fully. It, okay. And as if that wasn't messy enough, they have two kids, so it's a custody battle, literally. Right. Yeah. And both Edmund and Alice had their own reasons for wanting to keep the kids. Edmund claims that Alice was being too promiscuous and unfit to properly take care of the kids. Right. And what I know about this case particularly, like I don't know the nitty gritty like you do delivering the case, but I do know that that is going to be the bulk of this case, Alice's promiscuity. And I know that like it's the 60s. So being a promiscuous woman and being a woman who is not dedicated to like fighting for a marriage, you know, obviously doesn't read well at that time. Yeah, you're automatically a Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just point blank. But in the end, it was decided that Eddie and Missy would stay with Alice in the meantime. Alice and Edmund would go back and forth between meeting with lawyers and calling each other about money. It was just really a chaotic time for them. But I don't think anything would have prepared them for the morning of July 14th, 1965. Alice woke up around 9 a.m. to find that her kids were not in their room. After looking around a bit, she rationalizes that Eddie must have taken the kids or at least know where they are. So she calls him. She says, have you got the kids? Edmund replies, no. And she begs him, don't play games with me. And Edmund insists, I don't have them. Alice, at this point, I'm pretty sure it's setting in that her kids are gone. Yeah. She doesn't know. Edmund doesn't know. And she must be terrified right now. Yeah. And that's why she's on the phone and she goes, Eddie, don't fool around. Do you have them? Please don't do this to me. Eddie, they're missing. Oh my God. So she called Eddie like wondering if he had the kids. Would that be normal for him to have the kids or? Yeah, they went back and forth. But for a majority of the time, Alice had the kids and Eddie 
did have keys to the house, so it's not impossible for him to have maybe gotten the kids at some point, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, like, what does that say about him? Like, who she thinks he is? Because, like, she put them to bed at night. So for her to not be, like, told that he's taking the kids and she thought that it's possible that they were with him, it makes me feel like... That's a normal thing for them. Right, that she doesn't trust that he would have, like told her ahead of time or that she doesn't trust that he I don't know has her best interest in mind. no oh my god I never even thought about it like that honestly but yeah. that is something to keep in mind at least Edmund goes over to Alice's place and they begin to look everywhere for their kids but after having no luck they call the police which is where we meet Jerry piercing now he is the lead detective on this case and when he goes over, he is shocked to see Alice. She's all dressed up, face beat, <laughs> with makeup and looking all put together, which immediately makes him think. When you say face beat, yeah, like I face literally beat. am like, who beat her up? Oh my God, I'm really? not a makeup girl. Oh my God. <laughs> no, okay, for those like, who don't who do makeup, having your time? face... Having your face beat means you have like a full <laughs> face of makeup on. Alice, I can't. Not <laughs> did you see like the question marks no. in my eyes? I literally was like, "Who oh beat like, Alice this is normal. up in the time that she called the police?" <laughs> no wonder Jerry is freaked out. <laughs> He's got two things to handle now: a disappearance and a domestic. <laughs> Which immediately makes him think that Alice is the reason behind this. That she had something to do with the kids being gone. Mm. So Jerry and the other officers continue to do an investigation of the house. There were no fingerprints taken. Barely any photos of the scene because it is now a scene two kids are missing. And after searching, they only found one fingerprint that did not belong to the kids or Alice. But even that's a dead end because they didn't have the technology to test that print in like a big database that would hold thousands of potential matches. Oh, right. So they would need to test it against the specific person it belongs to. So did they test other people besides Alice? Like <laughs> no. any of like her family, friends, neighbors? No. no. Nobody. Say, say one more person. Nobody? No, no one. Hmm. Hmm. As the police are looking around, they see a lock on the outside of the children's bedroom door. On the outside? On the outside. What does that mean? <laughs> okay. It was I'm on the outside. I'm sorry to like, what do you mean? So it was on the outside, but after questioning Alice, she claims it's for Eddie because apparently he's been known to like raid the fridge every night. So that sort of explains the lock away. Oh my god, someone needs to lock me in my bedroom so I can't raid my fridge every night. I'm like, if this is what keeps me skinny, put two. Put two. <laughs> Throw away the key. No. Okay, I guess I can kind of see, like, if her child is sleepwalking and raiding the fridge. Like, I guess it could be unsafe. So I'm going to hold my judgment. But when I heard that there was a lock on the outside of the door, I have to say I was a little bit taken aback. Yeah. And if, if any of you listening didn't feel taken aback, I'm worried. I'm yeah, worried. like, who's just locking you in your room like that? It's so scary. But, yeah. I mean, also, I guess, like, it's kind of like a child-proofing thing. He's young. But, yeah, I mean. But it scares me because, like, they didn't have cameras on kids at that point. Like, we have now, like, those cameras that you can watch your kid. Yeah. Even if the room is locked, you can see what's happening. 
In the 60s, they didn't. But Alice goes on to say that she can't remember if she locked the door that night. Through further investigation of the house, Jerry also discovers her little black book. It's an address book filled with a bunch of men's names and numbers. So Jerry automatically assumes it's people that Alice has been sleeping with. Because, like I said, this book was filled exclusively with the names of men. Okay. I'm trying to put myself in, like, 60s mindset because my 2021 brain is like what does that matter i know i'm I'm like like, get it (laughs) okay but the kids are missing like yeah you have a different job to do please but this prompts him even more to think alice knows what's up she's done something Mm -hmm. and he says to his partner you take the husband i'll take the And mind you, he says this all while the house is being actively searched. Yeah, like, she literally is a mother with missing kids, and he's going to go ahead and call her that. Yeah, and it's all within the same couple of hours, I want to say. He has no idea yet what is the case. Which, yeah, he has no idea. He goes to ask Alice what her timeline of the night before the kids disappeared. And Alice tells him she fed the kids dinner, which was veal and vegetables, then took them for a drive. And the neighbors corroborate this, so... So far, so good. She put Eddie and Missy to bed, and it's actually so sweet. They start doing their little nighttime prayers, and I'm assuming the window was open because a girl was walking by who used to babysit and heard them praying. Another corroboration. Good. After putting the kids to bed, Alice took her 11-year-old pregnant dog, Brandy, for a walk. Aww. Which is, yeah, the start keeps getting cuter and cuter. I'm sorry. And after taking Brandy for a walk, she doesn't go to sleep until after a 3 a.m. phone call with Edmund. Wait, what? Yeah. It's pretty late. I mean, for me, that sounds so normal, but that is very late. No, that's weird, though. She woke up at 9 a.m. and she was up on the phone until past the... Like, what? That's... Yeah, it's... I mean, no, I'm not saying like, oh, that didn't happen. I'm just like, what the heck, Alice? Go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you have a pregnant dog and two kids, please. Take some melatonin. Yeah. On the phone call with Edmund, they talk about the usual money, lawyers, divorce, all the chaotic stuff that was happening prior to this. Mm. And like we said, she woke up at 9 a.m. and found the kids missing. More alarm bells start ringing for Jerry when he starts gathering information about Alice. A babysitter she hired back in February of 1965 said that she went on a cruise with her main boyfriend at the time, a 50-something millionaire contractor named Anthony Grace. Okay. She swore, yeah, living real good. I'm like, (laughs) Like, Alice, my girl, oh my God, please. Alice swore the trip was an accident, claiming that she and a friend got locked in the bathroom of the boat while it was still docked, and they weren't let out until the next stop in the Bahamas. So this was just to say that, hey, the babysitter was taking care of the kids, and Alice never called, never checked up, and never picked them up when she was supposed to. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Alice then had to convince her nanny into staying several days alone with Missy and Eddie. The nanny and Alice, to say the least, did not get along very well. And she, she being the nanny, ended up suing Alice for $600 in back pay, which I'm sure in like the 60s was maybe a little bit more than it is now. But yeah, like just reading that out loud doesn't say, know, doesn't like, sound so You're going to pay more in lawyers than you are for that money. Yeah. Just get a grip. Alice claimed she owed the nanny a mere $150 and said the nanny had stolen money from her. So, 
this isn't great testimony either way. Like, whether this nanny is telling the truth or whether Alice is telling the truth, like, it just sounds like a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry also hears more information about Alice through Edmund. Edmund had filed for sole custody in the past, saying Alice was an unfit mother. Alice's own mother wrote an affidavit siding with her son-in-law, Edmund, actually, and called Alice mentally ill. Alice's mom asked the court to grant full custody of the kids to Edmund. Wow. She called him a good man who would take care of the children, who were, in her eyes, innocent victims of a sick mind. Oh my God. She didn't know what was happening behind closed doors. She only knew him really as a father. All this coupled with the fact that Alice does not look like a typical distraught mother just affirms what Jerry has been thinking from the moment he walked into her home, that Alice had something to do with the disappearance of her kids. Mm. At some point during that same day of the investigation, Jerry gets a call. He stands up and orders Alice to come with him. Without telling her a word of what's happening or where he is bringing her, they hop in Jerry's car and begin their drive. And there, just a few blocks away in a vacant lot, is Missy's lifeless body. The autopsy reveals that she had been strangled, marks visible on her neck, and her eyes red from hemorrhaging. As Alice gets closer to Missy, she faints. I don't Even know. if, see, this is the thing, is that to me, that is so unprofessional. I'm sure his tactic was because he was so worried about how she was taking all of this that I'm sure his tactic was to see, like, how will she react? But what the hell, Jerry? Because no matter if she killed her kids or not, that is an incredibly immoral thing to do completely like uh, ew it's just that's a disgusting act of a police like i just cannot believe it i know it made me sick while i was reading it that he basically brought her along was like hey let's go for a ride and he has known this case for not even 24 hours and he's gonna make that call that he's gonna potentially this is a mother who maybe didn't kill her kid and is now looking at her daughter's lifeless body for no reason, because this guy has a hunch that she I did can, it? Like, what? Jerry also noted while searching the house that there was manicotti left over in the trash. He considers that it might be important, but doesn't have anything to do with the information just yet. As the autopsy is being done, the medical examiner notices a discrepancy in Alice's story. He finds that the food she claimed to have fed the kids, the veal and the vegetables, mm-hmm. is not the last meal that Missy had. They saw she had macaroni in her stomach. Interesting. So is this, I'm sorry, is this just like mac, like is this them calling manicotti macaroni? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I don't mean to be like a pasta freak. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean. We're, we're really showing you all sides I'm really here. getting hung up on this. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, so manicotti to me is like that. It's kind of like rolled lasagna almost. Yeah. Like it's you like stuff it with huge... cheese and like cover it with sauce. That's not macaroni. No. Macaroni is like elbow. Yeah. But are we just like calling macaroni like as if it's just like how we say pasta? So the medical examiner's like it's macaroni because he can't see the shape when it's digested. Oh. Is that what it Maybe. is? Maybe. Wait, yeah. I don't know. Let's go with that. Okay. No, I... I Did I just talk through this and now it makes perfect sense? Yes, it makes why. perfect sense I'm to no me. I'm no longer mad. Never mind. No, okay. it's fine. Yeah, like as if you digest it and he can still see it. it yeah. She had elbow pasta. Yeah. I'm like... 
No, because as I was reading, I was thinking that too. I was like, macaroni manicotti, like pick one, but yeah, you. I guess he can't. You're a smart girl. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm glad we have a podcast together. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Five days later, Eddie's body was found. The body had been so badly decomposed that the autopsy could not determine the manner of death. People have theorized that they died at the same time, though, because. Eddie was extremely attached and protective of Missy, so if Missy was the target or was taken, Eddie would have made a scene or gone with her. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, But my thing is, like, why would Missy have been the initial target? Like, are we calling yeah. this, like, a sex crime? Like a, like a predator or well, a pedophile? I, I think that's what the detectives were expecting, but during the autopsy, they didn't find any signs of that. Okay, so, I don't know, I'm just like, now it's a little confusing to me why it would be like, why would Missy be the target? If you, even if it's like just some random guy who broke into the house, why is he going to kill only one kid and leave the other? Of course, two kids are the target if there's two kids in the room, you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. He would have been after both of them from the start. In response to all of these factors, the police still do not have any physical evidence to arrest Alice. In response, they bug Alice's entire home, just sitting and listening to her every move for two years. Wow. Two full years. Okay, and so did they get anything out of it? No. Like, two whole years. Not one thing. Not one thing. Not 0.5 of a thing. tax dollars were going to. (laughs) God. Two years and nothing? To be living in the six... <laughs> I know, right? Like, <laughs> No, it turns out that they found more about Edmund than they did about Alice. Okay. Interesting. They found that he was too morbidly interested in what happened to his children. Like, asking them very specific questions about the manner of their death. <gasps> Ew. Yeah. Okay. The police ordered Edmund to take a polygraph, and he passed, but... They spotted him in the library reading a book about how to pass a polygraph test <gasps> just days before. So he did it. Yeah. No? Yeah. Like, I mean, he must have studied pretty well. Must have been a good book. Well, okay. So are they like, cool, so we're going to disregard the polygraph because he worked really hard to pass this? Nothing comes up that they did anything after that to sort of, you know, be like, hey, maybe this was... Not a good test. Maybe we should do another one or ask yeah, him questions. Yeah, it just kind of feels like that's not the end-all be-all. Like, that's what they took okay. it as. It was their answer. Later on, Alice reveals to police that Edmund told her he had once flashed a child in a park. Oh my God. But this was also never officially reported. And again, the police disregard this. I can't believe this. This is a lot. It's, it is a lot to take in. It's very strange. Alice began using her maiden name to get jobs as a secretary after I mean, still being investigated. I mean, tarnished. Whether she did it or not, like, makes sense. Obviously, she's going to try to get a different name so she can live a life and support herself. Yeah. And you'd think that she can have that. Try to move on from this horrific thing. Well, I mean, it's her legal yeah. right also to, like, live her life until they have a case against her. Oh, which of they course. they clearly don't so far. But every time the police would catch on where she was going or that she got a new job somewhere, they would call her employer and let them know that, hey, this is the Alice Crimmins, and she would be fired. That is crazy. Yeah. That is a crazy, crazy abuse of power. And they were so hyper-focused on her 
Mm-hmm. It's insane at the lengths that they're going to. Right. Like, where are the other suspects that you're looking into? Because even if they think it's Alice, they should be ruling other people out. Of doing a little bit more investigative work. Yeah, like, you can't rule someone out based on no invest... Like, you have to investigate people in order to rule them out entirely. Yeah, it's your job. <laughs> Just do your job. What are we paying you for? <laughs> They even at one point called Edmund and told him she was with another man because they wanted him to have a reaction to it. They were trying to rile him up. The police called the medical examiner because they needed more. They wanted something to charge Alice with, anything to make her seem guilty. So they asked the medical examiner to change the time of death so that it lined up better with their theory. Hmm. That's messed up too. I'm just that, sitting here that, mad right yeah, now. It's okay. Just, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know what else to say anymore. And this ended up being enough. They move forward with a grand jury to indict Alice. And this is when police get a note. In November of 1966, an anonymous note was sent to the police. It detailed that the sender had insomnia that kept her up in the early hours of July 14th, 1965. So the day that Alice woke up with the kids missing. Yeah. And when she looked out the window, she saw, quote, a man and woman were walking down the street towards 72 Road. The woman was about five feet in back of the man. She was holding what appeared to be a bundle of blankets that were white under her left arm and was holding a little child walking with her right hand. He now hollered at her to hurry up. She told him to be quiet or someone will see us. Police were able to find out based on the explanation in the note and her vantage point of where her apartment was and who the note was sent from. Hmm. Okay. So I hope that they investigated this at least. Oh yeah, they asked her for questioning and the woman's name was Sophie Aramirsky. Friends of Sophie say that she is less than reliable And police even wondered why she hadn't spoken up sooner. Right. Um, My thing is just like, okay, sure. So Edmund is sketchy as hell, but he doesn't fit the bill for Alice going to prison. So they don't look into him. But as soon as this anonymous note comes about, they're like, ooh, let's investigate for once. Yeah. To the point where they can pinpoint her location from her just being like, yeah, like, um, that sounds like pretty good detective work. Where was that before? Where was this energy before? (laughs) Where was that when you were fingerprinting the apartment? She said that her husband advised against it. But the more she told her story, the more confident and emboldened she became. Friends, weird. Right? Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Just weird. Friends say that Sophie is notorious for embellishing stories. She truly knew how much her testimony meant to the case, and she loved having that. I hate her. Yeah. Is I don't, that she okay seems to like, say? I hate her. From what I know and from this research, it seemed like she likes the attention. Yeah, she's a brat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. Gonna come right out yeah. and try it. In the fall of 1967, she would testify in front of the third grand jury. Alice is arrested but makes bail. She has to wait a while before trial. Okay. And her attorney demands that either they move to trial or drop all the charges. Right. The judge backs up this ultimatum. He's oh, like, finally, yeah. somebody doing their job properly. Yeah, no, he's like, yeah, you guys need to either. Do this now or never. Anybody ever heard of a speedy trial and your right to it? (laughs) 
They take Alice to trial for the manslaughter of Missy, but can't charge her officially with Eddie's death because they don't know what killed him. Oh, right. His yeah. body was too bad, too right. decomposed. The trial just focused on her sex life and not so much the murder. Ugh. Of course it did because it was... they don't have any evidence towards her committing it. Like, <laughs> I'm okay with the fact that, like, Okay, if she did it, let's send her to prison. But let's send her to prison because we know that. Yeah, not because we don't like the way she is. Yeah. Like, grow up. Sophie, the witness, is just so happy to be in the courtroom. Oh, my God. She appears almost giddy and is even photographed waving excitedly to reporters. Alice decides to testify, something most defendants don't do. Mm. The questions center mostly around her sex life. Here is a cross-examination where the prosecutor focuses on her experiences hanging out with her ex-lover, Joe Rourke. Mostly the questions are about the time she spent at his house. So they ask, does he have a swimming pool there, Miss Crimmins? She answers, yes, he does. Did you ever go swimming in that pool? Yes, I did. What were you wearing when you went swimming in that pool, Miss Crimmins? One time a bathing suit, one time nothing at all. He asks, where were your children when you were swimming without a bathing suit in Joe Rourke's swimming pool? And Alice says, they were dead. Oh my God. I feel like they went in there knowing that they were going to convict her of this murder. And so hearing this was just the final nail on the head for them. That, wait, (laughs) that is a crazy lineup of questioning. Right. Oh, I feel like I just watched a movie listening. I was like, I I, I had to take a minute because I was like, that's crazy. Based on, yeah. That's a crazy. It's crazy that this trial is focusing specifically on her sex life. But this lineup of questions, I am so sorry. It was I mean, that would get me to look at her differently. Yeah, I mean, it's. Oh, you were swimming around naked in a pool when your kids were dead? Like, as much as I don't believe... Well, I don't know if I don't believe she did it, but I don't believe that she should be prosecuted for it right now because we don't have any evidence. Joe also testified. He had been coerced by police to let them tap his phone calls and even wear a wire around Alice. The reason he did it is because the police had information that he had been seeing a man and he didn't want the information leaking in order to preserve his family. He had a wife and seven children. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. He had visited drag clubs and dated someone who dressed in drag. And at the time, this wasn't widely accepted. So he was worried about himself, his image, just... Mm -hmm. Did not want this getting out to the public. He said in a sworn statement that one of the times he was with Alice, ironically the only time he wasn't wearing a wire, she confessed to him that she had killed her kids. Oh, okay. Which I'm like, come on. <laughs> okay, the one Stop. time you weren't wearing a wire. It's not like Alice knew that. Like, yeah. What? Ridiculous. Okay. Alice nearly fainted at this in the courtroom. I thought you were my friend, she yelled. How could you? Uh-huh. Days earlier in the lawyer's office, Joe had told Alice that he wanted to marry her, which just makes this all the more shocking and devastating for her sitting there. Sophie, the woman who wrote the anonymous note, also testified, and Alice yelled to her furiously, saying that she was making it up. Mm. The trial nearly derailed when Alice's defense team discovered three of the jurors had gone to Kew Garden Hills to the scene of the crime. That's definitely not allowed. Oh, I'm like, how? They wanted to see for themselves if Sophie's eyewitness testimony, which was already controversial because she took two years to come forward and it was an anonymous letter at that. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see if it held up. Yeah, they wanted to see if it held up. What the heck? Like, <laughs> not the 
your job. I mean, I get it that they want to be thorough, but like, that's not That's okay. not your job. Leave that to the police. That's not okay. Just show up when you need to. The whole thing too is like, if you don't have enough information to put her in prison, don't. <laughs> Just don't. That's the answer. <laughs> don't do it. God. Judge Farrell, who presided over that first trial, waved it off. He let the jury deliberate, reminding them, we are not trying here a case involving sex morals. We are trying a homicide case and find Alice guilty. So if he has to say that, he knows that's a janky-ass case. That should tell you the way this whole trial was operating If the judge has to say, hey guys, please keep in mind the only thing I want to do here is talk about if this is a homicide or not. Mm -hmm. I don't really care about her sex life. If If he has to say that, he knows that this case is bogus. It's bogus. an unfair trial. Bogus. Yeah. Alice ended up appealing on the grounds of what the jurors did. And instead of serving five to 25 years for manslaughter, Alice, who had spent the summer incarcerated, was free. Hmm. The prosecution tried again in 1971, upping the stakes by adding a first degree murder charge for Eddie's death along with manslaughter for Missy. By then, Alice and Edmund's short reconciliation was over. Tony Grace's wife was dead, and he was in Alice's love life again. The circus atmosphere in the court remained, and they were up to their usual antics of just bringing up her sex life. Nothing new had changed at all. Wow. Sophie testified, but this time, so did another neighbor, Marvin Weinstein. He was saying that his family was the one that Sophie saw and not Alice and her children. Oh my God. So are we kidding here? Not even a little bit. Are we kidding? So the police didn't want Marvin to come forward then. No. During the first trial. I'm sure they had an inkling that there could have been some other guy. And they didn't bother to look into that. Alice is still found guilty for both children. Years later, the conviction for Eddie is thrown out because of the fact that there was no cause of death. Right. But Missy's death conviction for manslaughter is upheld. Okay. Just as before, an appeals court throughout Alice's conviction, or at least the first degree murder charge for Eddie's death that garnered a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Alice would serve just over 30 months of prison time overall. In November 1977, Alice Crimmins was paroled. She married Tony Grace, who'd visited Alice once a week during her time in prison and moved with him to Key Largo. After Alice is free, she says, they wanted me to break down. They wanted me to grieve, not for the sake of my children, but for them, the police. I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction. They were my kids. Nobody was out looking to see who killed my kids. They were interested in making me break. Okay, let's talk about the things that aren't sitting right with me. Okay, (laughs) give it to me. (laughs) I'm just... Now that we've heard this all. So obviously the investigation, because I mean, from what I know, I know that the media ran with this case. I've like heard not now I know more about it, obviously from this, but I have heard that like the newspaper photographers had more photos than the literal evidence locker. Really? Like, so I'm like just kind of hearing now how you are talking about the investigations of the case like I cannot believe it went down this way neither can I it's honestly so frustrating how little the police did when it came to this investigation and like 
the third fingerprint, I'm sorry, but that should be grounds for like, Alice is not the only suspect and nobody else was looked into. Why was that not something that was like heavily talked about in court? Like the fact that Alice literally was their only suspect from day one and that they looked into nobody, including the (laughs) father who supposedly exposed himself in a park to children, to a little girl. (laughs) I cannot like the fact that he did that he studied on how to pass a polygraph and then passed they didn't look into it i mean my mind is i'm wondering how many other suspects they had that they did not look into because they were so focused on alice Mm -hmm. and on top of that this part didn't really fit in with the research but edmund had bugged alice's home before what do you mean bugged As in, put in listening devices when she was hooking up with other men, (gasps) would sometimes sneak into the house, and there was one case where he scared someone that she was with. It was very creepy. He had almost this obsession with her, I want to say. I can't. There was also a discrepancy of when he claimed he watched a TV program when it actually aired, but it could not be accounted for. What do you mean? Like, he was was watching a TV, like... He said, like, oh, that night I was watching this. And they were like, no, that wasn't even on. Yeah. What the heck? Which was so weird. Wait, okay. And also, like, I'm sorry, but to me, when I'm thinking about this, I feel like Edmund had a lot more motive than Alice did. Because for me, like, okay, the nanny thing, I know that that was supposed to make her look bad. But in my eyes, I'm like, that's just, like, a reason why she wouldn't have killed her kids because she was totally fine living the life she lived with her kids in the picture. Of course. She was okay leaving her kids with the nanny, leaving her kids with their dad, and she was still living the life she wanted to live. So for me, he's a man that's losing a lot. She was not losing a lot. So I'm thinking he probably had some sort of break. That's If that's anyone had motive here to harm these kids... I 100% agree it would have been Edmund. Over her, just because I feel like she was fine. The thing is, I'm not here to call Alice Crimmins mother of the year. I'm just here to say I don't think she had a fair trial. I don't think she had a fair investigation. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, like, yeah, she was okay being not a great mom. Yeah, she was doing it. She was still a mom, though. I agree. I don't think she wanted her kids to disappear. I just think that... She didn't care if they were there while she was hooking up with guys. Yeah, like, she was living her life just fine. Yeah. And like you said, the only person that had something to lose, who was essentially losing it all, was Edmund. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod, Twitter at the Chalkline Pod, and check out our YouTube account. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story. Yeah.